Well, hey guys, good morning. How are you? Good. If you're standing in the back and you're wanting some seats, there are some up here. If you're sitting and you notice there's a bunch of open spaces next to you, you could also scooch in. Just two suggestions. You can stand. I don't care. <laughs> I'll be standing. All right, Jesus, thank you so much that we have the opportunity to come and praise you and to sing. Thank you that we have this awesome building. And I just pray, Lord, that as we're going throughout this week, may you give us um, just the courage and the wisdom to discern who we should be speaking to and who we can encourage to come to church on Easter. Lord, it's the day that um, really the revolution began, that we get to reflect on what our king did for us, that we could be redeemed and restored and called to live life as a the new creation in you, Lord. And so I just pray that as we're going towards these next two weeks, that you'd bring to mind, to light, certain people that we're supposed to encourage to be here so that they could know you as King, Savior, God, and friend. And I pray even today, you'd be softening those people's hearts to get to hear the message. Um, pray for today, as we look into your word, that you would speak to us, that we would be able to leave here and say, surely God is in this place. And so we love you, Lord, and we look forward to get to hear from you this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. My name is Justin. Um, I've been here at Edgewater for the last 10 years. If you don't know me, I was raised in San Diego until about high school. High school, we moved up here, which I think this place is the most beautiful place on earth, but coming from San Diego, where isn't, right? And I went to Hidden Valley High School. I met just this beautiful girl that I really wanted to marry. She's my wife now. But I went to her dad and I said, hey, I would really like to marry your daughter. And he said, not until you have a job, which is super fair. So I moved down to San Diego because I had a job opportunity at a church down there. Worked there for about a year. And then Stuff with family happened, so I had to move back up to Grants Pass, which is great. This is home. So I came back. The distance from San Diego to Grants Pass is about 13 hours. I was 20 years old, so I could do it in about nine. <laughs> so I got home before my parents were expecting me to be home. Um, I know we have some police who come to Edgewater. That's not an admission of guilt. That's just a story. And uh, so I got there before they expected me to be home. And so I get home and my mom and dad aren't there. And the whole way I'm just thinking, how could I bless my mom to just say, my mom and my dad say, thank you so much for letting me come back in. You've always provided, you always cared for me. You never really notice how much your parents do for you until you move out. And so now I'm coming back home. And so I'm thinking, what could I do? I mean, I could wash the dishes. I could wash the windows. I'm not going to pay rent. So that's out. What else could I do to just kind of bless them, you know? Well, when I get home, I see in the corner of the property, there's always been these blackberry bushes, which has just been the bane of my dad's existence since we moved into that place. Every year he fights them, and every spring they come back in full force. And so I think, I'll take care of the blackberry bushes. They're going to love that. They're going to think that's great. So I go and I get his machete, and I head outside, and as I'm heading down the steps, I see that there's some blackberry bushes up next to the side of the house, right underneath my old bedroom window. And I never knew as the oldest kid that I was the glue keeping this whole project together. But apparently me moving out, things are just falling apart. So, okay, I'm going to fix it. So I get down there and I just start hacking at these bushes. And I mean, looking like Rambo in the forest, this machete, just tearing at them. There's vines flying everywhere. The thorns are tearing at my skin. I got leaves in my hair. I even get down to the dirt because you got to get those roots out. Otherwise, they're going to come back. 
I decimate this thing. I did everything short of salt the earth to make sure they wouldn't come back. So I get rid of it, and then I think, okay, now I'm gonna go get the ones down in the corner. But before I do that, I hear a car come down the driveway. And I think, well, before I get down there and finish the job or continue the job, I should really go up, say hi to mom. I haven't seen her in a bit. Give her an opportunity to tell me how smart, strong, and handsome I am, because that'll bless her. So I go inside. And I, I come in, she goes, oh, Justin, you're home. And I go, yeah, you know, I got in a little early. I thought I'd do something to just, hey, say thank you, do something to bless you and dad. She goes, oh, right on. I said, yeah, I was just tearing out some blackberry bushes. I noticed you guys let some grow right outside the house, which is crazy. I mean, things are really falling apart here. She goes, there's, there's no blackberry bushes on the outside of the house. I go, yeah, not anymore. You're welcome. I took care of them. And she's just kind of looking at me. And I'm just waiting for the thank you, you know. And she goes, Justin. Did you kill my raspberries? What's awesome about that is raspberries take three years after you plant them of tending and caring and watering before they bear fruit. This was the third year, which means they were planted before I moved down to San Diego. And I just was oblivious. So instead of everyone hearing about how strong, smart, and handsome I am, everyone just thinks I'm strong and handsome, which is a bummer. But have you ever tried doing something you think this is going to be good, this is going to be helpful, this is going to really bless people, help them, and then it ends up just being a bummer? Like, that didn't work out. Like, maybe it's with your finances. You're trying to invest in your future and your kid's future, so you start putting a bunch of money into just some, just some winners, you know? So you put a bunch of money in Enron or the Silicon Valley Bank, and it's gone. Like, dang it. There's a lot of times where we will either be engaging in something or someone does something and it inadvertently hurts us. And it's just a total accident, miscommunication. Hey, I get how you could have thought that way. I get what you were trying to do. And it's easier to forgive those people or seek forgiveness when it's that way, right? Which is, man, that was a miscommunication. I, don't, I have no idea why God made blackberries and raspberries to look exactly the same, right? I, it's easier sometimes when it's like that to either get forgiveness or to forgive. It's a lot harder, though, when the person has either targeted you, hurt your kids, it was malicious, hurt your family, maybe they mismanaged money at your business, maybe they mismanaged your money. It's a lot harder when it, someone has purposefully injured you, purposely gone out of their way to hurt your reputation, hurt you, your family. And we all know that as believers, okay, I'm forgiven. There's no more condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. I'm set free. And if this person who's hurt me, they're a believer. There's no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. They're set free, but I'm still hurt by them. And I'm still kind of holding on to that resentment. And I'm still injured by them. And it's going to come up again later. And I'm not going to trust them again. I'm not going to let them near me again. Like we all have people, I believe, in some way, shape, or form in our lives that it's taco night, I need to get salsa, and I go into Winco to get salsa, I turn down the aisle, and that person is there. And I go, we don't really don't need salsa. And we just leave, right? There's, we have someone in some capacity where we say, I've cut them off. I don't talk with them, I don't engage with them, things are not the same anymore. We just kind of hold them. I'm not gonna forgive them. We can't move past what has happened, and we keep ruminating on it. And so on Wednesday night, we were in 2 Corinthians, and there's this story in 2 Corinthians where Paul is saying there's a guy who has done something so bad that the church has said, you can't be here anymore. So it's like all of us got together and we said, Jim hurt me. Did Jim hurt you? Yeah, Jim hurt me. Did Jim hurt you? Yeah, Jim hurt me. Okay, Jim can't be here anymore. And everyone said, yes, right? So they kicked Jim out, which Jesus says, 
is a tool that can be used when you have someone who is celebrating and embracing sin. They need to be removed from the community of grace and encouragement and of love so that they can repent and then, become, then come back in. Well, this guy, Paul says, has repented. He is repentant. He wants, he wants reconciliation. He wants to be brought back in. And the church says, you know, I kind of like it without him here. I don't want him back in. And it could be because Jim is a really, it doesn't say he's Jim, but he's going to be Jim for us. It doesn't say that Jim, what he's done, but he might be an inconvenient person. You know, he could be the guy that's always making molehills into mountains and always bringing up things that just blows up the meeting. And oh my gosh, he's kind of doing his deal again. Or maybe he's the guy who brings the tambourine or his voice is just annoying. We don't know. Could be that he's inconvenient. It could be that he's really hurt some people in the church. Like there's still money that's owed. There's still property that's damaged. There's still hurt feelings from things that were said. There's people maybe saying, I don't want him around my kids. We're putting up boundaries that we can at least have a space that he's not welcome in. We don't know exactly what he did, but we know that it's so serious that the entire church said he's out. And now Paul is saying, hey, he's repentant. He needs to be brought back in. Does that seem completely unreasonable? I think it's totally unreasonable. Like there's people in my life who have hurt me and I've said they're out. And according to the story, when they're repentant, I'm supposed to bring them back in. It's not just for the church, but it's for my own life. It's so unreasonable that Jesus actually gives you and I an unreasonable illustration that we're supposed to think on and take as we walk throughout our lives. You'll, fe- you'll find it in Matthew chapter 18. That's where we'll be this morning. It's Matthew 18, starting in verse 23. It's the end of the chapter. If you don't have your Bible, we'll have it on the screen. I tell my grade schoolers when I teach downstairs, if you bring your Bible, I'll give you an extra piece of candy. You guys should start bringing your Bibles. Your kids bring your Bibles more than you do. Sorry. Anyway. (laughs) Matthew 18, 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven, this is Jesus speaking, may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Then out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I'll pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me and should, you, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also... My heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So today we're going to look at this story. We're going to look at the magnitude of the debt that this server, the servant owes. Then the obligation that he has to now forgive because he's been forgiven that massive debt. 
the consequences of that servant's unforgiveness, and then ultimately how you and I are to forgive in light of this story. So the first thing is the, the magnitude of the servant's debt. We're told in this story he owes 10,000 talents to a king. So this king, he's cleaning up the ledger. He's getting everyone together. He has this servant come in who owes him this massive debt, 10,000 talents, a number that means nothing to you and me without context. A, if you were to wake up in the morning and work a manual labor job from the time you woke up until dinner that night, you would earn for that day one denarii. That's one day's working wage. And so the average man, if he worked every day minus holidays and weekends, would earn 300 denarii in a year. Okay, one talent is 6,000 denarii, or it's 20 years of a working wage. And so this man owes 10,000 talents, which is 200,000 years of working wages. For you and me, that's $2 billion. That's a lot, a lot to owe. But it's even more than that because a talent is just the largest denomination of money that the people at that time had a concept for. That's the largest denomination of money that they had. And then 10,000 is the largest number that the Greek language has. It's just a myriad. So it's like Jesus is just saying he owed a bajillion dollars. Right? The concept is, oh, he owes way more than even I can begin to comprehend. And there's another level of it that I think is pretty cool is for Herod at that time, who was over that region, his gross domestic product was 600 talents. Sorry, 900 talents. He was 900 talents was his gross domestic product. So Jesus is talking to a group of people saying, this is more money. This is 10 times as much as this area that we're in goes through a year. This is a crazy amount of money. It's an unreasonable amount of money for any servant to be in debt to their king and now have to give an account for. How does a servant even accrue that much debt? Like, he's probably not the, the cook. He's, he's not the guy running the grill. He's not the guy who takes the trash out. He's not the guy who sweeps. How do, what servant does a king have that could possibly accrue 10,000 talents worth of debt? So what I think this is, is he's what's called a vassal king. So you have the king who's in charge of a kingdom and he'd have different regions and cities and towns and over those regions and cities and towns he would put different officers or vassal kings who would bring his customs, his law, his justice, the way that his kingdom is gonna do things and be responsible for all of those citizens and the taxes and then be ultimately responsible to the high king. And so the high king has these vassal kings in place to bring his customs, law, and justice into place. And ultimately, everyone's responsible to that high king. And in this story, you and I are supposed to see that somehow through mismanagement or just maliciousness or ignorance, he's completely upside down. He is so far upside down that there's no way he's ever going to be able to pay the back. The king says, you're going to pay me back. And he goes, just give me a little bit more time and I'll get it, which, yeah, right. If a bank came to me and said, hey, you owe me $2 billion, they're never seeing me again. You know, that money is gone, gone. That's, that's this scenario right here. This, but here's what happens. The servant, he begs for forgiveness. The king takes mercy on him, releases him, and cancels the debt. So I, took, I taught this story for the grade schoolers last week. And I told them the scenario. I said, in this story, Jesus is talking to his disciples. It's a parable, which means you and I are supposed to put ourselves in the shoes of someone in this story. Who are we in this story? And the, the kids, both services, they raise their hand, they go, we're the king. We're not the king. All right? In this story, you and I are the servants who are completely upside down. 
The Bible says for those who have accepted Jesus as their king, who's been repentant, who've been released from their sins, who Jesus has cleansed us of our debt, we have a new identity. You see it in Romans 8, 14 through 17, that we are kings and heirs in Christ. It says for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Second Corinthians 5 has this beautiful way to put it for you and me. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. So the position that you and I have been given once you accept Jesus as your savior is you are a vassal king, an ambassador for him. I don't know if you've ever looked at the United Nations and just seen who assembles there, but 98% of the people who sit will be wearing suits and ties. And there's like 2% of people, there's people from Papua New Guinea who will come and they'll be wearing their traditional gear with feathers and the leather. And it's like, wow, that's shocking. But they're, what they're doing is going to a foreign country and bringing their nation's customs, justice, way, way of looking at things, their history to another group saying, hey, you might like some of what we have. What we have is really good. You will enjoy it. And they, even though it's strange and it's out of place almost, it's, they wear it with pride and with honor. That's how you and I are supposed to be. You and I are supposed to be within our community, in our house, with our spouses, our kids, our neighbors, our friends, and even our enemies. We're supposed to be bringing God's justice, his goodness, his kindness, his mercy, his gentleness as vassal kings and ambassadors into every situation that we have. This story tells you and me we do a pretty darn bad job of it sometimes. It says we've accumulated quite a debt. If you have a government and that government has a direction they're headed, this is what's right, this is what's good, this is what's just, this is the way that we're going to do things, and you have a group of people who try to undermine that government and say, we're gonna choose what's right and wrong for ourselves, I'm gonna decide what's just, I'm not gonna do what they say, what is that process called? It's called treason. And the Bible calls it sin. And so what you and I do is we have sinned and we continue to sin. We continue to do things our way and I'm going to do things my way. And I, I lie, I steal, I cheat. I have impure thoughts. All of these things are different sins that you and I will accumulate. Did you know that you can even sin when you don't do things? The Bible calls it sins of omission. Those are when you know you ought to do the right thing and you refuse to do it. You know that you should go to that person and tell them this information, tell them the truth, and I'm just not going to get involved. Those are sins of omission. And now if the Holy Spirit were to come and were to take a list of all of those things, every single thing for you and I that we've ever had, every lie, every time we've cheated, every time that we stole, all of those sins, every time we had those impure thoughts, every time that you didn't get involved when you should have, how long would that list be? It would be 10,000 talents. It would be a insurmountable amount. It would be a completely unreasonable amount. It would be enough to where people would look at you and go, how did you get that upside down? That's how big it's supposed to be. That's what the picture that you and I are supposed to come across as we look at this story. And so somebody will leave here and they'll say, man, Justin is a really avid gardener who's good at killing blackberries. Like some people are gonna leave with that thought. And they'll come to me and they'll say, hey, I would like for you to come to my house and kill blackberries for $10 an hour for two hours. If I do that, what have I earned? $20. 
Bible says the wages of sin is death. So I'm super upside down because I can only afford one death at most. And I've got just death upon death is what I'm due. I can't possibly afford it. I can't ever pay it back. It's completely unreasonable. But Jesus, our high king, he took pity, compassion upon us. When we choose to repent and turn to him, he releases us and he cancels the debt. So that's the person you and I are supposed to relate to, look at and say, okay, that's me. That's the magnitude of the debt that I've been forgiven. But then the story continues as we see if we've been forgiven that much, we then have an obligation to forgive because here's how the story continues. After being forgiven of that amount, 10,000 talents, which in denarii would be 60 million denarii, he goes out and he finds a man who owes him 100 denarii, which isn't an inconsequential amount. I mean, that's 100 working days wages. That's quite a bit of money. But if you owed someone $6,100,000, they're going to call it $6 million because in comparison to the $6 million, the 100 doesn't even matter, right? So this man has just left the king's court $6 million free, and he finds someone who owes him 100. And he goes up and he violently grabs him by the neck and says, you will pay me back all that you owe. And what's fascinating is this servant says to the first servant, he falls on his knees, he says, take pity on me and I'll pay you back. The exact same phrase that he had just previously said to the king, which you would think that would click in his head going, ah, oh, I just said that. Hey, I'm sorry for grabbing you by the neck. You know what? We're good. That's just... That's, that's what he should have done. But instead, he decides, I'm going to put you in prison and you will pay me back all that you owe. How much money do you earn while you're in prison? Not a lot. Is he ever going to get to pay him back? No, he's just holding him in unforgiveness. He's going to hold him captive in his unrepentance. And so the other servants, they hear about this and they go and they tell the king. And so let's look at it one more time. It's Matthew 18, 32 to the end. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So this is now the consequences of his unforgiveness. He had an obligation to forgive because he had just been forgiven an insurmountable amount. And now this is what the consequences are. The king is enraged because the servant's lack of mercy, and now he's going to be delivered to the tormentors. And just to make sure that you and I get the point, Jesus makes it real clear. He says, this is how my father will do to everyone who does not forgive their brother from their heart. Jesus is saying unforgiveness leads to punishment. Which makes you and I go, okay, hold on, time out. It sounds like what you're saying is, if you forgive, you'll get life and get to go to heaven. If you don't forgive, you get punishment and prison and hell. Is that what Jesus is teaching? Because I thought reading the rest of the Bible and the Gospels that it's by, not by my works or my efforts or my thoughts or good intention or my sincerity that gets me to go to heaven, but it's only by the work and blood of Jesus on the cross that he has taken my sin upon himself and set me free from that. And that's what I get to go to heaven. That's what saves me, sets me free. What do you do with this verse? But also when Jesus is telling the disciples in Matthew chapter six, when he teaches them how to pray and Jesus prays this prayer, he says, and forgive us our debts as we've also forgiven our debtors. And then Jesus says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, 
your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So what's Jesus saying? If you forgive, you get to go to heaven. If you don't forgive, you go to hell. I don't believe that. I don't believe that's what Jesus is saying. Here's what I believe. I believe that we're all cucumbers, and once you get saved, you become pickled. And once you're pickled, you can never become a cucumber again. Right? You'll never unpickle a pickle. I don't believe that's what Jesus is saying. I believe Jesus explains to us what he's saying in Matthew chapter 25, when Jesus paints a picture of judgment day. And every person will come to the king and have to give an account. And Jesus says to some, I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty and you didn't give me anything to drink. I was in prison and you didn't visit me. And they said, when did that happen? When were you in prison and I didn't visit you? When were you hungry and I didn't give you anything? When did this happen? And Jesus says, when you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. I believe what Jesus is saying here is your inability to open up your heart to this person shows me that you never really opened up your heart to my mercy, that you never really understood, you never really got what it means. You know, Paul says you need to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. I think this is a, a litmus test for it. Is our, am I able to forgive in light of how much I've been forgiven? Am I able to forgive? Because if my heart has really been melted by Jesus and the work that he's done for me, I really should be. So no, Jesus isn't saying if you check these boxes, you get to go to heaven. That's not at all the point. In fact, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's sweating blood as he's praying to God saying, hey, if there's any other way that this cup could pass from me, let's do that instead. But there is no other way, so Jesus ultimately goes to the cross. This isn't about checking boxes. This is about checking to see if your heart has been transformed by the work of Jesus. And Jesus, what he warns is when you and I refuse to forgive others, we're handing ourselves over to torment. We're handing ourselves willfully over to the tormentors to be spiritually imprisoned by our own unforgiveness. Nelson Mandela's got this quote. It's so brilliant. It says, unforgiveness is drinking poison and expecting that the other person is going to die from it. Isn't that totally what we do? We are at home. We start ruminating on something that happened to us a long time ago and then becoming embittered and frustrated and angry. And then ultimately only going to take it out on our kids, our coworkers, or our spouse. And the person we're upset about isn't even there, unless it is your spouse, right? So... Pastor Dick Worthington is a pastor who works here. He's become a really good friend of mine. And he was telling me a story that he was a pastor at this church for a long time, loved his church. And there was some dissension going on underneath the surface. And what had happened is a family wrote this nine-page letter against him saying that he needs to be institutionalized. He needs to get counsel. He, he probably isn't even saved. You should not go to his church. And it caused this major church split where 35% of his church left and just devastated him. He said he was so angry from it. that he, His kids noticed that he was angry. His wife noticed that he was angry. The elders of his church kept asking him, when are we gonna be done with the angry sermon series? Like it just, it poured out into everything. Dude was just angry. And so he decided one day, I'm just gonna pray for him because that's what I need to do. So he's looking in the Bible. I need a biblical prayer to pray for these people. And he found Psalm 94, and this is what he prayed for them. Oh Lord, God of vengeance, O oh God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O oh judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. O oh Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour out their arrogant words. 
all the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. He says, I want boils on their children. I want their flock to die. I want famine to come and kill their crops. Like this is the prayer that he's praying for these people. He's praying and he's praying, he's praying. And he said, this is one of the, one of the times in his life where he felt like God tangibly, clearly spoke to him and said, okay, then what do you want me to do with your son? Well, hold on, I'm a pastor. And he starts realizing, man, I do the exact same thing. I am just like them. Or at the very least, I'm capable of doing the exact same things that they do. And so he felt like God not only said that, but God said, I want you to pray for their forgiveness, and then I want you to pray for their blessing. And he said what happened in him after being obedient and following that through is he he felt lighter happier. He was able to move on from that scenario. And what he realized is those people who hurt him and said those things and ruined his reputation and drug him through the mud, they were not his enemy. That we all have one enemy and the rest of us are just victims to him. And often we'll point our finger and hurt other victims, not realizing, no, you've all been hurt by Satan. And so forgiveness is not just about the person being forgiven, Forgiveness is about you and me forgiving them and being set free from it. Oftentimes when we are unwilling to forgive that person, we find that we're chained up to the back porch of that scenario or that event, just frustrated, poisoning ourselves, getting irritated and agitated. And the person that has hurt us is in the front yard enjoying their spouse, enjoying their kids, enjoying their life, having a barbecue, eating from the good humor truck. And we're in the backyard just killing ourselves. That's the imprisonment, the torture that unrepentance, unforgiveness, and resentment and irritability leads you and I to. So then the question is, okay, how do you and I forgive them? What process do we go through in order to forgive people? Because some of us have been hurt really, really bad by others. And it's not just a a trivial thing to wave it off and say, okay, I'm I'm over it. Here's what the king does over a non-trivial amount to forgive. He does three things for this servant. It's Matthew 18, verse 27. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. The first thing that the king does, the first thing that you and I have to do is you take pity on that person. And that doesn't mean you go, oh, you poor meanie. It's not that. It's not just taking compassion on him, which some translations have, but in the Greek, it's literally the idea, that's the verse. It's literally the idea of, I'm gonna take my heart and put it in that person. Like, do you know this saying, my heart goes out to you? It's that idea. I'm gonna take my heart and put it in that person. I'm gonna take my eyes and put it in that person. I'm gonna take my feet and put it in their shoes. It's making a conscious decision to not exacerbate our differences, my differences with that person, but to see how similar I am to them. Because what we so often do is when we're angry with someone, we wanna accentuate the differences up between us, how I could never do that. I could never treat someone else that way. When in reality, we're supposed to say, I have either done that exact same thing or I'm capable of doing that exact same thing. You ever been to a park and you've seen someone doing a caricature? They do them at Disneyland all the time. Where what they'll do is they'll have someone who sits and there's someone drawing a cartoon and they'll magnify your imperfections, right? So then like the, whatever stands out the most about you, they'll make the biggest. So like for me, if I was doing it, they'd show big nose, big ears, and just like super strong, right? Like that's what, that's what it would look like. I was gonna have one be an example, but I literally couldn't find one that was just too mean. I'm like, I don't wanna have everyone laughing at this poor dude. 
But so what a caricature is, you're taking all the imperfections and you're magnifying them, and that's what that person is. They're identified by that imperfection. So when someone lies about us in a closed room, drags our name through the mud, and it gets known that this is what's happened, it just crushes you, and you're telling a friend about it, and you say, they just lied about me and said these things, and the friend goes, well, why did they do that? So often our first response is to say, well, it's just because they're a liar. And that's what they are, they're just liars. And your friend, if they're a really good friend and they've walked through life with you for any period of time, they might be able to say, well, two weeks ago, didn't you do something very similar where you lied about somebody else? Why did you do that? You're probably not gonna answer, well, it's because I'm just a liar, <laughs> right? You're a human being, you're three-dimensional. There was nuance and circumstance and there was, there was more situations. Oh, you just don't know the whole story, right? You're not just a liar. But that's what we do. We have to make ourselves superior to someone else and minimize them to their imperfections and what they've done wrong to you in order to stay angry and bitter and resentful towards that person. So the first thing the king does is he takes compassion on them. He puts his feet in his shoes. And so the second thing that he does is he releases them. So when the servant left that meeting, had he shown forgiveness to the other servant, I believe that would have been the end of the conversation. There, there wasn't going to be follow-up meetings. There wasn't going to be gossip from the king of, oh my gosh, the schmuck just lost 60 million denarii. You won't believe what I had to put up with today. There wasn't going to be those kind of conversations. There wasn't going to be a warrant out for his arrest. And we weren't going to revisit it a few months from now. It's gone. He released him from it. He wasn't going to keep bringing it up. He's not labeled. He's fully and completely forgiven. And what can so often happen is even in our close relationships, like with a spouse or with a kid or a coworker or a friend, especially enemies, we can give them these labels. The more they let us down, hurt us, and we still hold them that way, even though we forgive them, we still don't release them from that label. And so there's a story of a priest who's running this parish and he teaches every Sunday. He's been there for 20 years. 20 years ago, he was in seminary and he committed a sin that just, he can't believe he did it. It just kills him. Every single day, he prays to God about it. God, will you forgive me for that thing? I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I engaged in that behavior, that activity. Lord, forgive me for it. Every day he prays about that. And it just, it wears on him. 20 years he's been teaching at this church. And one day a prophetess, she comes into his church and she starts prophesying, telling people God's plan for their life, their future, their dreams, all that sort of stuff. And the priest goes, nah, I just don't know about that. That's kind of weird. I need, to, I need to test this and see if this is legit. So he goes to her. He says, do you talk to God? And the prophetess says, I do. And he goes, if you talk to God, I want you to ask him, what thing I had done 20 years ago that I talked to him about all of the time that I cannot get over, and if you can come back and reveal to me, if God tells you that thing that I did, that private thing I've told no one else about, then I'll know you're legit. I'll know that what you're prophesying is true and you can keep doing it here. Otherwise, I just don't know if you can be here. She goes, okay. So they leave and go their separate ways. The next Sunday, they come back. The priest teaches, notices the prophetess is there. At the end of service, he goes to her. He goes, did you talk to God? She goes, I did. He goes, did you ask her? Did you, no, did you ask him? Ooh. Did you ask the father? <laughs> that sin that I had committed that wears on me every single day, did you ask him about that? She says, I did. He goes, what, what did he say? She said, I went to God and I asked him, hey, that sin that the, that the priest talks to you about every single day, ask for forgiveness for, can you tell me what he did so that I can verify with him that you really speak to me and we can continue to prophesy and do great things in his church? 
And God the Father responded to her and said, you know, I'd love to tell you, but I honestly can't remember. That's the truth. In Hebrews and in Jeremiah, the Bible tells you and me that not only does God forgive our sins, but he willfully choose to forget your iniquities. That, he may, that God forgets it. He does not label you as the liar, as the cheat, the guy who continuously messes up every single day. No, he forgets it. It's wiped away from you. You are released from it. And you and I have to do that with the people who have hurt us. And you go, well, how in the world could I possibly do that? How in the world, because when people really hurt you, it's not trivial, this is a real hurt, how in the world could I possibly release them from what they've done? Well, here's what Matt says to do, and it's a quick application for you and me. When you start to think about that person, and you're in your home, and you're about to drink of the poison of resentment and just start ruminating on that thing, you have 15 seconds to begin to think on something else. And Philippians tells you and I exactly what to think on. You and I go, is whatever this is that's about to affect me for the rest of the day, is this true? And it might be true. That person really did hurt you in that way. Okay, is it just? No, that wasn't just. Okay, I'm gonna have to choose to think on something else. Is it praiseworthy? No, this isn't praiseworthy. Okay, I'm gonna have to make a conscious effort to think on something else. Is it commendable? No, this wasn't commendable. This wasn't noble. So you choose. You have to make a conscious effort. I'm not going to think about them in that way. And what will happen is you'll begin to, over time, realize that you've released them from that just the way that Jesus asked you and I to. So the first thing that he does is he takes pity on him. The second thing is he releases him. And the third thing is he cancels the debt. So imagine this scenario for a moment. I go to your house after church today and you find that I'm in your backyard killing your raspberries, right? <laughs> Justin Cabot's come to your home. He's chopped up your raspberries. There's two things you can do. You can either demand justice or you can forgive me. And what justice looks like is it looks like this. You make me go to the store and spend my money to buy you raspberries. Or you make me go buy you a raspberry plant or seeds and plant you a raspberry bush, take care of it for three years until you get the raspberries that you deserve. Or you can cut me up like I cut up your raspberries. Right? That's what justice and what judgment looks like. On the other hand, you can forgive. And what forgiveness looks like is you have to go to the store and buy raspberries, or you have to replant raspberries and tend to them for three years until you get the raspberries that you're due, or you go without raspberries. My mom hasn't had a raspberry in 10 years, right? That's what I've been forgiven. That's what forgiveness looks like. Someone came up to me after last service and said, hey, should I bring you a raspberry bush? I said, no way, dude, I'm forgiven. <laughs> But what about if it's something that's not tangible, right? What if it's intangible things, like someone's really drug your name through the mud. They've said things in a meeting that cost you a job opportunity, a relationship. It's, it's damaged you. Well, you can do one of two things. You could get justice. You make sure that everyone knows they're a liar, that that wasn't true, and you make their reputation go down. Or you forgive, you leave their reputation intact, and you let yours be hurt. The question is, when someone has really tangibly hurt you, when someone has really deeply hurt you, why in the world would you forgive? Because it's just going to cost me. Why in the world would I ever forgive? That's why every single week we take communion and why we end in communion. Because it, costs you, it shows you and I what true forgiveness actually costs. That you and I owed King Jesus 10,000 denarii worth of sin and of wickedness. 10,000 denarii for any king alive in that time would have cost them their entire kingdom. Their entire kingdom would have dissolved, fallen apart. 
And that's quite literally what happened. Jesus decided to, the high king over all the earth who created everything that you and I see, both things seen and unseen, he got up off of his throne to come and take pity on you and me, to put his heart in us. That literally means he became an indwelled in human form. And he lived life as a human being, experiencing all of our frustrations, pain, interests, things that are, make us happy, things that make us sad. He experienced every single temptation yet without sin. And then Jesus was beaten, mocked, slandered, betrayed, brutalized, and then murdered on a cross to pay for sins that he did not commit so that you and I could be redeemed, released from those things, and our debt be canceled. That this, every single week, you and I are supposed to look at this and realize the massive debt that you and I have been forgiven. It is completely unreasonable. So that you and I would be empowered to then go through our community, go into our homes with our spouse, with our kids, with our coworkers, even our enemies, and say, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna hold them for 100 denarii. Why am I gonna argue over pennies right now when I've been forgiven 60 million? Why would I do that? And so every week, you and I take this cup to remind ourselves, I forgive because I'm being asked to forgive out obedience to my king. If I really wanted to do something, would it be obedience? No way. It's not obedience, it's compliance. You and I, Jesus asked in obedience, he mentioned it so many times in the gospels, in obedience to forgive others because it's really important, not just for the person you're forgiving, but for you. God doesn't want you to go through your life drinking your own poisons of resentment and irritability and pouring that out on your kids and on your spouse or on your own heart. It is time to forgive. So today, if you're here and you're a debtor, you realize there's 10,000 talents worth of debt that's on your heart. All you have to do to be released from that, the Bible says, is call Jesus Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. That is it. It's not any work or effort or act of sincerity that you can do. Jesus takes you as a cucumber and makes you a pickle. You are saved and saved secure, not because of your own works, but because of his work. If you're here and you've been redeemed, you've been released, you've been, your debt has been canceled, there are people in each of our lives that has accrued a debt against us. And we may have forgiven them, but we haven't forgotten. Or we haven't forgotten and we haven't forgiven. Out of, out of obedience to King Jesus today, I believe we are called to take compassion on them, release them from the things that they've done to us, and cancel the debt today.